Are you ready for the next level of leadership? It's going to be here before you know it. Today's leaders need the skills, connections, and savvy to become top professionals in their fields. Welcome to Innovative Leaders Driving Thriving Organizations with Maureen Metcalf. In the next hour, you'll meet people who have become successful at the helm of some of the most respected organizations in the world, and you can become the next big success story. Now, here's your host, Maureen Metcalf. Hi, welcome to Innovative Leaders Driving Thriving Organizations. I'm your host, Maureen Metcalf. I'm the founder and CEO of Metcalf & Associates. I work with leaders in their organizations to identify the trends that will most likely disrupt their business and develop business strategies and business and leadership practices to leverage those trends to create strategic advantage. I'm a regular contributor to Forbes and the lead author of an award-winning book series focusing on innovating how you lead and transforming your organization. I'm also an adjunct faculty member of universities in the U.S. and Germany. With me on today's show is Chris Savalero, and we're going to talk about leadership during times of civil unrest. Chris is a nationally recognized emergency medical services leader, best-selling author, and advocate. Chris is a member of the Forbes Coaches Council and available for speaking, coaching, and mentoring. Currently, he's the senior partner of Sabalera & Associates, a medical consulting firm assisting organizations in meeting the challenges of tomorrow. Chris is a member of EMS One Editorial Advisory Board. So the goal of the Voice America show is to provide valuable information to leaders and emerging leaders that prepare them to lead their organization in the dynamic times we currently face. The uh, highly effective leaders that we have, the more highly effective leaders we have, the better the journey. Basically, good leaders produce good results and poor leaders produce expectedly relatively poor results. And so I invite you as our global audience to find ways to apply what you're learning from Chris and others. And that application may be a specific behavior or if you are listening to this show to develop a broader leadership wisdom to take away something about his mindset that you can integrate into your work and also discuss with others. So the outcome of this session is really again to focus on leadership lessons from a time of civil unrest. Chris was on the ground navigating the crisis in Ferguson uh, during the riots. And so during this conversation, we'll discuss the uprising as the backdrop to discuss the importance of leadership vision, clear communication, clear roles and responsibilities, and strong leadership that's learned on the ground as the volatile situation evolves and changes. So unlike many of us who work in environments that are potentially unpredictable, most of us don't work in a time of volatility. So Chris will talk about how that shaped his leadership during Ferguson. So as you listen, I do invite you to think about how can you integrate what you hear today into your own leadership style. So Chris, welcome. I'm delighted to have you on the show. I got to tell you, Maureen, I want to thank you very much for allowing me to be part of this show. It's an honor for me to be here. Thank you. So let's start by uh, refreshing people's memories about Ferguson. So for those who don't remember, tell us uh, what happened and more precisely, what did you experience being there rather than those of us who are watching it on the news? 
Well, in 2014, the summer of 2014, a white police officer shot an African-American teen named Mike Brown in the city of Ferguson, Missouri. And this was the catalyst for 19 days of civil unrest that followed. And, you know, it was very, very interesting that during this time, this little small city in, uh, you know, north northern Missouri really was kind of thrust into the international spotlight because of all the riots and the looting and the assaults that were going on. And I never, you know, in my career, I, I was been a paramedic for 30 years, never in my career that I thought that I would be in a position that I would, you know, be in this type of environment. And it was really an interesting uh, opportunity for me because it really took a lot of my experience. And when I say experience, you know, things were happening daily that, uh, you know, the things that I had learned in my career really didn't work. So when I say experience, I mean the ability to critically think. I mean the ability to problem solve. But what I would use in a normal day wasn't really going to work when it came to dealing with the situations that arose during this crisis. And I think that those were the biggest challenges that I had to overcome during this. Yeah, because I imagine you didn't necessarily train for riot management. Or, or if you did, you, oh gosh, I'm sorry. You didn't train for riot management, and th it isn't something that most people have multiple opportunities to apply in their careers. I mean, when we think about emergency medical services, the ambulance, I mean, where were the really big riots that happened, you know, in our in our time? You know, we could think back in the olden days, there was the Watts riots. And of course, more recently, we just celebrated the 25th anniversary of the Los Angeles riots. But when we think about how we prepared to do our job, this was not just something that happens on a daily basis. And now since 2014, it seems that it's become more, I guess, uh, uh, the norm that any time, you know, the police officers or the interpretation that police officers are, you know, shooting citizens, we're starting to see these happen more and more. And I remember thinking that the incident in Ferguson was now going to be the catalyst for everyone else in the United States to react in the same situations as these things happen. And I think now we truly have to prepare for the days of civil unrest. And uh, it, it really does take its toll on the men and women who are first responders. Oh, I can imagine. So why don't you talk about that? What toll does it take? Because again, I can imagine, but I haven't had the firsthand experience. So I'm curious from your perspective, for yourself and for the men and women working for you. Well, first off, I think that first responders, it's a very, very emotionally charged job. You know, the, you know, certainly the police have their uh, emotions that they deal with. You know, when the firefighters are rushing into a burning building, you know, that's not a normal process. And, and it's the same for the emergency medical services folks who are now, uh, you know, on the front lines of being the best part of the worst day of someone's life, potentially. So they do a very, very good job of being able to deal with the high stress and emotions of daily uh, duties. But now what had happened was, you know, there was the feeling of uh, violence. Ambulances were getting uh, stopped on their ways, ways to call. Um, 
and there was uh, one ambulance that was at a red light and uh, a car next to them brandished a gun at them. Um, we had to put these folks in body armor. Uh, we don't have body armor. We're not combatants. We're, 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 our job is compassion. So when we think about the, the toll that it took, it really took an already charged stress level to a, another level. And let's not even say another level. Let's call it another two levels because it was a constant for you know 19 days. But even after the 19 days of the initial crisis, we now had to prepare for the grand jury to come back with their thoughts on indicting the officer or not. So really from August to the end of November, middle of December, the men and women uh, at Christian Hospital EMS and, and the other first responders who were around really kept their stress levels high, which really caused a lot of angst uh, and, and a lot of, uh, I think, uh, uh, you know, uh, trauma, uh, mental trauma. When you think about uh, PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, this isn't just for folks that are, that are um, uh, you know, in combat. Anybody who sees trauma is really could be affected by this. And I think a lot of the folks that were involved and on the front lines uh, needed to get some extra help when this stuff was over. So let's go back to you talked about body armor for your team. How did you manage the overall safety? Because it sounds like they were at significantly higher risk. You know, as you said, you're in the business of compassion. Someone has a heart attack and you don't typically run into a house with body armor on. You know, it was really interesting because when I first went up to take the position in uh, North St. Louis County, I, I, you know, I'm a street guy. I grew up in New York City and, and you had to learn how to uh, navigate the streets, you know. And I, I came from Fort Worth, Texas uh, to take the position in St. Louis. And Fort Worth, Texas was a very, very, um, I'm going to call it a safe place to be. One of the challenges were when I came to Christian Hospital, and I realized the, the, how the city was made up and, and, and the coverage area of the crews, I said to myself, I've got to do something to protect these folks and keep them safe. Well, that was really kind of, a, a, I guess I kind of was overthinking that because the folks, the men and women who did their job every day, even in the, in the rough areas that they were serving, did not feel feel like they were in a position to be unsafe. You know, there were gangs, there were shootings, there were stabbings, there were a lot of things that would raise an eyebrow to the normal person who would say, this isn't a safe city. So, but they were very comfortable with that and working in that environment. Now, one of the challenges were, as it now became, I don't know, I guess evident that they could be assaulted it really kind of changed their focus. And there were a couple things that we did. We did get them body armor that allowed them to uh, have at least have the feeling that if they were shot at, they were going to be taken care of. But as, as an EMS leader, I had to be able to say, my responsibility is to make sure that these folks get home to their family at the end of their shift. And I would not allow them to go into certain calls if there was no police protection to go with them. So if we deemed an area a hot zone, if we knew that there was rioting or looting or, or the possibility for assault, if we couldn't get an armed escort by a police officer, 
I wasn't sending that ambulance into the call. There was one call where a woman was in labor, imminent labor, and she had to walk about a quarter mile through some woods to get to where the ambulance was. And I remember that paramedic calling me very, very upset at the end of that call. And, you know, he was like, how are you? You know, how are you going? How can you make this decision? And 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 we're we're supposed to be here to take care of people. And I let him rant for a good few minutes to let him get it out of his system. And I said, do you know how I made this decision? Because tomorrow morning at seven o'clock, you're going home to your wife and daughter. That's how I made this decision. So there were some things that we had to do to really make them understand that my responsibility was them as their responsibility was to the people they were serving. It sounds like, one, just I appreciate that you make sure your people go home alive because that does seem like a foundation for good leadership. And I can also understand the very difficult decisions that that you and they are making when it means you're not responding as efficiently because of a hot zone. So let's shift for just a minute What's a hot zone? What's the difference between that and a warm zone, as an example? Yeah, I, I think that that's a really great question. And for the sometimes I got to remember that uh, as we talk about it to kind of put things into those perspectives. But so a hot zone would be something that you know you put your finger on on the you know the fire of the stove. That's going to be really really hot. So a hot zone is where things are happening right now, where the danger is. And a warm zone is going to be, you know what, if you go a couple more blocks, you're going to walk right into the the face of that fire. But if you stay here, you're going to be okay. But you still need to be able to be aware that as things now start to move towards your general direction, you've got to be able to keep yourself as safe as possible. So when we define a hot zone, we're defining it as that's that's ground zero. That's where things are happening. That's where the protesters are. That's where the riotings are going. Riots are going on. That's where the looting is going on. That's where, if I put my people in that area, they're going to be right in the middle of the rioting, the looting, and the assaults. And I got to tell you, for the first three or four days of this incident, we would move the ambulances to places that we thought were safe. And uh, if we talk about the first day and the things that we learned there when we come back from your break, one of the things that I had to do was continually move the ambulances like chess pieces because of the sophistication of the protesters and how they were communicating with each other. Oh, okay. So I didn't think about the protesters and their, I'm going to ask you when we come back about your command center, but did the protesters have a similar command center? You know, one of the things that they did uh, very, very effectively was use social media. And if there were a lot of uh, police at a certain area, they would get on certain, you know, they would get on social media and they would disappear and say, hey, you know, the cops are here. Let's go ahead and go up and meet a mile away from here. And then all of a sudden you would see the cops leaving and you didn't know what was going on. But they were communicating via social media and very, very organized. Interesting. Okay, so we're going to go to break. And when we come back, let's talk about how did you set up a command post? um, And how did you communicate across the the early responders? Because I'm assuming it was police and fire and other government officials as well. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. 
Metcalf & Associates is a management consulting and leadership development firm dedicated to helping leaders, their management teams, and their organizations implement innovative leadership and business practices to help create market differentiation necessary to thrive in this rapidly changing environment. As the author of eight award-winning leadership books, Maureen Metcalf and her associates are positioned to help you and your organization grow and thrive. Visit Metcalf-Associates.com. Maureen is ready to discuss your needs and tailor a solution to meet your needs through her expertise in keynote speaking, leadership coaching and training, transformational and organizational growth consulting. For your business, we can help with facilitated leadership retreats, organizational planning, culture alignment, individual and organizational assessments, online leadership development programs, and one-on-one or corporate-wide leadership development sessions. Move forward with Metcalf & Associates. Visit Metcalf-Associates.com. We hear it and read about it every day in the news. America is heading over a fiscal cliff. Home prices are still receding and unemployment growing. How can you preserve and increase your wealth in this kind of economy? Tune in to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with host Jay Taylor. Jay will explain the decline of our monetary system and the economy and will give you winning investment ideas and the tools to protect and increase your wealth. Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor can be heard Tuesdays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, 12 noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Now you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take Voice America on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll-free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Innovative Leaders Driving Thriving Organizations. To reach Maureen Metcalf or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to info at metcalf-associates.com. Now, back to this week's program. Hi, welcome back to Innovative Leaders Driving Thriving Organizations. This is Maureen Metcalf and Chris Savalero. And we are talking about managing and leading during an uprising, specifically the Ferguson crisis. So before break, we were leading into the conversation about setting up a command post and how the rioters moved and communicated. So how did the police, fire, EMS, and government work together to set up a command post? What did that look like? Yeah, I got to tell you, Maureen, I think one of the biggest challenges that we had was the ability to communicate throughout the, I guess, all the people that were involved. So initially, you know, we were able to talk with the Ferguson Police Department, the Ferguson Fire Department, and, uh, you know, the EMS Department, because we we had a history of being able to do that. When the county police got involved, which was almost immediately, because as this occurred, they wound up taking over the investigation, as this occurred, it became a little bit more difficult now to, to work with them and to get that information. Certainly as the crisis went on, when the FBI came in, when the state police came in, and when all these other entities came in, 
interoperability or the or the opportunity to work within the 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 structure of that command became almost impossible. If I have to make a, a critical uh, give some critical uh, you know information about this event, it was the fact that that interoperability was a failure that we were not able to communicate with each other. I remember from the very first, I mean, we were very, very trained after 9-11. So, you know, the, the president uh, at the time, President Bush, was very, very uh, aware that we needed to have specific and we went through months and years of training to all get on the same page. Now, one of the things I asked from the very, very first day was, who's in charge here? Who's in charge here? Who's in charge here? Where's the command post? Where's the command post? Because that's the structure of where you lead from. So my area of expertise would have been the medical branch. Um, but you get all the chiefs in the same room so you can communicate together so you don't have to make a phone call or you don't have to find the next person and give him that information. And this was a failure from the very beginning that there was no setup of a command post that allowed for that information to flow. And we were really flying blind for quite a few days. So that surprises me. It seems like that's something you would have trained for. So what caused the failure? It, it just is, was it a communication? You weren't using the same tools or the same channels? Or was it a question of who's in charge and how do we function? I think, you know, really, to be honest with you, I think it was a misinterpretation of the event. So yeah. rather than looking at it as a crisis, we were looking at it as a call. We were looking at it as a, just an everyday call. You know, so I think the challenge, Maureen, is we didn't really look at this as a crisis. We looked at it more like it was an everyday call. So I think we, we mislabeled it initially. So where I was thinking from the very beginning that this was going to be a lot bigger than it was, I think that initially it didn't have that same impact. But very, very quickly, and, and probably within the first few hours, I realized that this wasn't going to go away as quick as I thought it would. And I think that that's where that challenge came in. So I think we were using hope as a strategy, and we know that hope isn't a strategy, to say this will be over soon. So we just didn't take the time to think of setting up that command structure that would have helped us from the very beginning. Ah, uh, so it was it was an inappropriate or an yeah inaccurate assumption about the gravity of the situation. Yeah, you know, if I have to put my finger on it and, and think about that, I, I would think that the hope was it was going to be over soon, and and we certainly didn't need to roll out the big guns of uh, of a command post. And uh, I think that was uh, one of our one of our failures. What were the, your other challenges? I'm curious, and then I'd like to get to, and what would be different today if a riot broke out in wherever, pick uh, Baltimore, Maryland? Did they do it any differently based on what you learned in Ferguson? Yeah, I think that uh, your first question was some of the the failures and. I think the first thing that I had to be able to realize was that this wasn't a normal situation, and I had to be able to approach it with my team differently. And I remember from the very, very first day, 
of trying to, you know, it was very, very interesting because I got a phone call uh, that this occurred about three, hour, three hours after the initial shooting. And when I got on scene, you know, we talked about the hot zone before. We talked about the warm zone before. We were kind of what was in a, we should have been in what was a safe zone. So remember, we're non-combatants. So we're supposed to be in an area where those resources could be safe and they could be protected until they're needed. And then when the cops say, okay, bring us, you know, bring us an ambulance, the ambulance is coming from a safe zone, and then there's protection when we get there. But in that safe zone, what I noticed when I arrived on scene was about uh, three or four SWAT armored vehicles. There was four news cameras, and there was about 200 to three, 250 to 300 protesters in our safe zone. So now I'm thinking automatically, well, wait a minute, I've got these, these crew members here, and they may not be in a safe area. I've got to take care of them, and I've got to move them to a safe area. So I think my very first lesson, or my very first failure was, I didn't think of the impact of that safe zone until mm -hmm. it was maybe a little bit too late. I should have moved those resources out of there quicker. I eventually moved them around for good egress into the scene and out of the scene. Um, but I probably should have taken them out of there altogether. Well, and it sounds like also where you move them, this is a chessboard. And it's, it's a fast-paced chessboard. It's not a slow and unmanaged, uh, the old-fashioned rioting and looting. Yeah, I mean, and that was the, the thing about this event is we didn't really know where the action, let's say, was going to happen next. And we needed to be able to almost anticipate that. But again, we didn't have that foresight that early on to make that determination. Some of the other failures that we had or that I had, uh, you know, I've got to take this ownership. And again, I have experience as an EMS leader, but I didn't have experience on this front. And was communication was a really big issue, communication with my folks. Now, we talked about that interoperability and that, and that communication with the other entities of what was going on. Well, since we weren't getting information, I wasn't able to share that information with my leadership team. I had nothing to give them. But the challenge was I wasn't communicating that to the workforce and they were just automatically assuming that I wasn't sharing the information with them. Mm. And they took a little bit of, uh, had a little bit of umbrage to that, thinking that, hey, you know what? We're on the front lines here, and the chief isn't giving us the information we need to be safe. But it wasn't until that was brought to my attention that I had the ability to say, that's right, I'm failing you guys, because I'm not, even if it's no information, you need to hear something. And uh, so that, I think, was a bad, uh, um, a bad uh, you know, uh, inability on my part to not kind of figure that out and read that. But again, you know, mm -hmm. you figure no news is good news kind of thing. Well, not in this setting, it wasn't. So if I can give the people out there a piece of advice, and certainly you may not run into a crisis similar to this magnitude in your, in your organizations, but regardless of the scale of, of what that crisis may be going on in your department, in your organization, always communicate with your people. It sounds like questioning your assumptions would be foundational in this case. But the thing about that, as I found as that went on, my assumptions 
were based on years of experience of mistakes. You know, in my book, uh, Ultimate Leadership, 10 Rules for Success, one of the chapters is experience comes from mistakes and mistakes come from lack of experience. Now, the challenge was there were things that were happening that I had never experienced before that didn't allow me to bring those that reflection into that decision making. So now what I had to think about was I would make decisions based on what I thought was best and then waited for the fallout to say, maybe that wasn't the best decision. Oops, and yeah. then the decision that I made today, Maureen, was going to be a totally different decision tomorrow for the same event because as things changed, that decision didn't work either. So I think yeah, another lesson that I had to learn was I had to be able to be dynamic and change my focus as the events changed around me. Hey, and that sounds foundational to every leader, right? The, the rate you of change you were facing and the impact of making a poor decision significantly higher for you than many traditional businesses where people's lives aren't on the line immediately. But, but the idea that you are, you formulate a hypothesis, you take a, a, an action and, and you have to learn immediately. So you've got to be open to learning, not having the answers, asking the right people and owning your mistakes and, and adjusting immediately. Yeah. And I think that one of the things that was really important was to make those mistakes, you know, to the workforce as that happened, you know, and, you know, this event was very, very, um, you know, eye opening to everybody. The, the president of the hospital was a gentleman named Ron McMullen and, uh, you know, a great leader and he was able to give great guidance. And it was about the, you know, we talked about the communication issue. One of the things that we did to help with the communication issue was in the mornings of every shift change at seven o'clock, six o'clock, whenever the crews came on, we invited them to the hospital because this was a hospital-based system, and we fed them a hot breakfast. We talked about the events of the evening past, and then we went ahead and discussed what would happen during the day. Well, it was about day six that the president of the hospital says, as he went on and talked about this in the community, the magnitude of this event didn't hit him until the morning when we were fitting our people for body armor. Mm-hmm. And so when we think about this as making decisions as things happened around us, we really had to think about it in the moment and not be able to strategize about it as we would an event within our organizations. So we think about what do we do first? What do we do second? What do we do third? What if this happens? What if that happens? Because if we would have been able to use that level of planning, we would have had more failures than what we did. So it sounds like you were adjusting fairly quickly and did avoid a lot of crises. And especially the, it sounds like the, just the human touch and communication was really helpful. Yeah, you know, I think that you, you learn that very, very quickly that you have to be able to give that information. You know, other things that we had to be able to do was I had to be able to manage the emotions. So I think one of the things that and, and, and I think I need to elaborate on that. Certainly, uh, maybe after your next break, we can kind of talk about that. But this was a very, very emotionally charged event, not only for the people that were in the street, uh, not only for the first responders, but 
but but for the human side of the individuals who were wearing the body armor, who were delivering the care. I mean, there were people who were picking sides between, you know, people who would sit down and break bread every day. And the challenges now were who was right and who was wrong and who did this and who did that. And, you know, taking care of people that, they, you know, if the protesters are going to act this way, we don't even want to take care of them. So when we think about that, managing the emotion was a very, very big process that was really challenging as well. I can imagine the dissonance in your team when some people are saying it's our job to take care of everybody no matter what, and somebody else is saying they're the ones who caused this and they deserve a different prioritization, if nothing else. You know, one of the things, and and I really would like to touch on the importance of vision, you know, as we come back from your next break, but one of the things I think was really important was we really had to be foundational in how we were addressing everybody that needed our care. What do you mean be foundational? Have a clear vision? And I think that's where it started from. And and I'll share a little bit about the vision and how we grounded ourselves in this time of uh, challenge. You know, one of the things that we think about is I think the, the most, I think that the, the tool that we use the least in our organizations is our vision statement. And we are wired to think in pictures. And without that vision, we don't know where we're going. We don't know where the organization is heading. And the importance of having that as a foundational process to who we are as an organization is what drives you in that civil unrest. If there's one thing I learned, it's how you prepare and how you answer the call that allows the leader to be successful in the times of crisis. So when we come back from break, let's talk about how you did prepare, because it sounds like that was part of your success, either initially or as you went forward, you learned to prepare very effectively to navigate this and keep your people safe. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Metcalf & Associates is a management consulting and leadership development firm dedicated to helping leaders, their management teams, and their organizations implement innovative leadership and business practices to help create market differentiation necessary to thrive in this rapidly changing environment. As the author of eight award-winning leadership books, Maureen Metcalf and her associates are positioned to help you and your organization grow and thrive. Visit Metcalf-Associates.com. Maureen is ready to discuss your needs and tailor a solution to meet your needs through her expertise in keynote speaking, leadership coaching and training, transformational and organizational growth consulting. For your business, we can help with facilitated leadership retreats, organizational planning, culture alignment, individual and organizational assessments, online leadership development programs, and one-on-one or corporate-wide leadership development sessions. Move forward with Metcalf and Associates. Visit Metcalf-Associates.com. What is the forum? It's an engaged discussion with the forward-thinking experts in today's business world. Hosted by Seema Vasa, an entrepreneur and thought leader. This is a place where you can come to talk, ask, and trust. 
We're not looking to sell you anything, but we are here to tell you the truth. If you want to hear about honest perspectives and winning success stories, listen for The Forum, live every Tuesday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time and 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. The future of online TV is here. View exclusive content from your favorite talk radio hosts and new programs that you can't see anywhere else. Visit voiceamerica.tv today. Whether the market's up or down, or if you're looking to improve your portfolio, our experts are ready to talk to you. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Innovative Leaders Driving Thriving Organizations. To reach Maureen Metcalf or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to info at metcalf-associates.com. Now, back to this week's program. Welcome back to Innovative Leaders Driving Thriving Organizations. This is Maureen Metcalf and Chris Sabalero talking about leading during civil unrest. So before break, Chris, you talked about um, vision and how important it was in your success. So can you tell us what you started with and a little bit more about the process of developing a vision? Yeah, and to me as a, as a leader and certainly as a, a leader that uh, as a consultant, as I go into organizations and I talk about the ability uh, to be successful, the vision statement, I think, is the most important component, most important tool in any organization. And that's because we are wired to think in pictures. If I, if I ask you to think about your door, you don't see the letters D-O-O-R. You actually see the picture of your door. You know, I read a good book one time that said, where there is no vision, the people will perish. And the reason for that is... We've got to know where we're going. We've got to be able to see it. Then we've got to understand our responsibilities within the vision to make sure that we reach that ultimate success. Now, when I first took the position, there was no real vision statement of the department. So I asked them. I got the leaders together. I got the workforce together. And we sat around the table and we said, what is it that we do here? Well, the the biggest answer I got was we relocate the sick and injured. Okay, that's a, a good thing to say. But we need to be able to have a vision. And we actually developed three vision statements. We sent them out to the workforce. We had them vote on which one they wanted. And then everything we did was based on that vision. So in a nutshell, it was we wanted to be able to deliver the highest quality of patient care, be leaders in our community, and role models for our career field. As things now started to happen, that was bringing uneasiness or unrest within the Within the ranks of the department, I remember sitting in my office with my head in my hands. I had my door closed, and I was thinking, you've got to be able to hang on to this and hang on to the control of what was going on. And I said, what am I missing here? What do I need to do? And what was happening? And what popped into my head was the foundation of this vision, regardless of what your personal belief was. Because we now had, again, crew members who were friends arguing chest to chest about 
what side they were on. And again, being able to care if the people want to, you know, beat themselves up and shoot themselves. I'm not going to take care. I'm not going to risk my life for them. And it really came back down to the vision statement, Maureen, to say we wanted to be able to deliver the highest quality of patient care, be leaders in our community, be role models for our career field. And now we had to be able to live that vision. Everything we did up to that point was all about the vision. People would come in and say, Chief, I think we need to get this piece of equipment. Well, how did that make us deliver the highest quality of patient care? How did that make it leaders in our community? How did that make us role models for our career field? And I would ask them that question. You had to be able to make sure we stepped towards the vision every day. Well, this was no different. So we got back to the foundation of saying, we got so, back to, I'm sorry about that. Okay. We got back to the foundation of saying, it's all about the vision of what we're trying to accomplish as a department. Now, I will tell you this as well, Maureen. This, had, this event was big within our career field. And we did a job that was great. The men and women who were in this department, I cannot say enough about what they did. And the next thing that I say had really nothing to do with this event. But in 2014, the men and women, the professionals at Christian Hospital EMS, we were awarded the number one EMS service in the United States. And it wasn't because of this event. It was because of the things that we did to live that vision. And they deserved that recognition, and really, they, they proved that they were the best. So do you, do you believe that having a clear vision, and not only having it, because lots of people have a vision, but they don't live it. They don't use that as their decision criteria. Do you think that was foundational in not only how you navigated the crisis of the the shooting and the aftermath, but also that preparation allowed you to to function cohesively before and after? Yeah, I really think that it did. You know, one of the things that when I do my you know speaking engagements as a motivational speaker, depending on the topic, one of the things I love to ask the leaders in the room is, how many of you have a vision statement for your organization? And very, very prideful, you see those hands go up. But the next question really kind of changes the pitch in the room when I say, who can come up here and recite it for me? Well, mm. if the, if the organization don't know the vision of the organization, how do the people within the workforce know what the vision of the organization is? And we have to remember that the true measurement of a leader's success is not that you can work a budget, not that you can work a schedule, not that you could do resource management. It's the satisfaction, the engagement, and the productivity of the workforce. That's what's the measure of a great leader. So if the people don't understand the vision of the organization, where the organization is headed, and what their responsibilities are to making that vision come true, you're not going to be successful as a leader. So when we think of what we do, we've got to be able to make certain that the vision statement is something that is not only uh, utilized, but it, it, it's got to be present. And if I can give your listeners one piece of advice, the advice that I would give them is if you're one of the leaders that don't know what your vision statement is, throw it out. Invite it's your, not very inspirational. It is. Invite your leaders to the table. 
Invite your workforce to the table because those are the people who are going to do the work and develop a new vision statement and then build a campaign around it and make it the catalyst or make it the, you know, the, the strategy of everything you do and allow your workforce to be part of the development of the vision and then making that vision a reality. You and I share that as, as a value and I, I facilitate those sessions. If I can't talk about the vision of my organization, then I'm not using it as a North Star. And the idea that a shared deeper purpose is foundational to inspiring people. If we don't have that, then we're not getting the level of productivity and, and engagement from our, our workforce that we need to. Yeah, and when we think about the, the days of the times of challenge, the times of crisis, you know, the times of uncertainty within organizations, I mean, the people who are there on the front lines really need to be guided the most during these times. And just like I did, I mean, I was having ambulances that were being stopped by protesters. I was having ambulances that had rocks and bottles being thrown at them. I had, uh, you know, members of my workforce that had to wear this body armor and they were fearful of getting shot. I mean, the, the, the fire departments that they were sleeping in overnight, some of these fire departments were, there was drive-bys and they were shot at. And it all came down to, and it all came down to the foundation of vision. We went back to the basics, what our vision was. We wanted to deliver the best care, leaders in our community, role models for our career field. And in your organization, no matter the crisis, no matter the uncertainty, no matter the, the whatever's going on, always go back to your vision to say, we're going to get through it because at the end of this, when we reach this big vision, this is who we're going to be as an organization. So when you, you said you had guys chest to chest arguing or, or disagreeing on how to care for people and who gets care or who gets priority, how, did you pull them back to the vision? How did you navigate that? Well, one of the things that I did in that case, and I actually walked in on them when that was happening, is I said, what the heck is going on here? And, you know, it was just the, the, they were very, very um, embarrassed now that they've got to answer to the leader about what was happening. And it really came back to the thought of, you know, not I, I'm not going to take care of those people. Now, when I say those people, it wasn't racially inflamed it was talking about the protesters. Now, I said, okay, I think that's fair. And you don't have to take care of those people, but you need to punch out, you need to go home, and we need to talk about this tomorrow. And that kind of made a little bit different sense because you are sworn to deliver this care. You are sworn that when people dial those three numbers, 911, that you're going to re respond and you're going to give the best service that you can. If you choose not to do that, I will respect your decision, but I do not want you in this department while you're doing it. And I think that that was a very, very <clears throat> consistent approach for me, because one of the things that I said, I'm a very laid back leader, but there are things that I didn't tolerate. One of the things I didn't tolerate was, of course, uh, being uh, irresponsible with your narcotics, with your drugs. But the second one was, I didn't care. If you were rich, if you were poor, if you were homeless, if you had a big house, if you smelled, everybody gets the same level of care. Everybody 
gets treated like they're a family member. And that was one of my things that I tell everybody. So if you're saying to me, you're not dealing or you're not delivering care to people, okay, but you're not going to do it. You're not going to be in my organization when you say that. So I think that that grounded them to the fact of saying, this is a normal situation. We're not picking sides here. The, The chief is being consistent in his approach to say, these are patients. They're not people. They're not, you know, protesters. They're not, they're people. And we got to take care of people. So it, it sounds like that vision was one of your biggest successes. What were your other successes? You know, I think um, some of the other successes during the event were we had the opportunity to grow as a department as, as things went on. We came together really as a team once everything kind of settled in, meaning that crews were watching out for each other. Uh, people were picking up the slack. Nobody complained about having to, having to pick up other shifts or, or additional work that they had to do. A lot of these folks were doing 36-hour 36 uh, 36 shifts during this time frame. Oh my and goodness. Nobody complained. Everybody supported each other. So I think another success was the the gelling of the team um really got to a level that um you know we were never at before. Did they sustain that after the crisis? I I realized the hours would change, but the the camaraderie did that stay the same? You know, it really did. And the reason that it did, after the initial 19 days when all the cameras left, and we didn't even talk about that craziness of the media circus, but the 19 days and when the cameras were gone, the event wasn't over. So we still had to deal with the day-to-day. There were still protesters every day. And as we started to prepare for the November event of the grand jury announcement, the stress levels were still very high. So it really kind of kept everybody on their toes just because there weren't any, you know, the media there. Uh, it was it was still uh, very much on the forefront of everybody's mind and everybody's responsibilities daily. So let's shift gears as we close and let's start with, can you give people your contact information, not only your website, but do you have a blog? How do they find you on Forbes Coaches Council. You have a lot of different ways that folks can contact you. Yeah, and I really, really enjoyed the opportunity to come and visit with you, Maureen. And, and I'd love to come back again and discuss leadership with you. But, you know, the, I think the best way to engage with me is, is I, you know, I have my own podcast, the Ultimate Leadership Podcast. And, you know, I have some great guests. You were a recent guest on there as well. We had a, a great show together. And, so really kind of connect with me via Facebook uh, at my page, Subalero and Associates. That's C-E-B as in boy, O-L-L-E-R-O and Associates. And then from there, you'll be able to see some great leadership content. You'll know when the shows come up. You're, you're able to see my email address. You're able to see my website. So rather than give you just a whole bunch of hodgepodge of how to connect with me, uh, check out that Facebook page, become a fan, and then you're going to kind of see all the different ways that you can interact. And uh, I got to tell you, man, this has been a great experience, and uh, I, I love the opportunity to be here with you, Maureen. Thank you so much, Chris. And let me throw out a couple of things that I'm taking away. 
uh, one, you hit hard, have a vision, have it before a crisis, and not only have it, but live it daily, be able to talk about it, and use it to make decisions. And the other thing I heard was an, a willingness and ability to morph in the moment each day. You looked at what, what was working, what wasn't working, and it wasn't optional to be bound up in your ego. It sounds like people's lives were on the line, and good people on your team and and your clients, uh, people who were injured, counted on you. And that openness to reflection really allowed you to evaluate the situation and make the necessary changes and respond to the emotions of all of the precious people who were impacted by your leadership. From the hospital, again, to your team, to all of those folks who were injured and and required compassionate care from people who were now wearing body armor and not accustomed to that. So I just, as a citizen, I want to thank you for what you did there and the lessons that you provided for everyone who is learning from your work. So to our listeners, we will have Chris back again. To contact us, either email me at info at metcalf-associates.com or Facebook, Innovative Leaders Driving Thriving Organizations. I would love to hear your feedback. Thank you. Thank you again for joining us this week. Please tune in for another edition of Innovative Leaders Driving Thriving Organizations with Maureen Metcalf next Tuesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. We hope to see you here next week. We'll be right back.